you will turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 this morning and continue on to verse 22. Actually, I think I'm just going to read to verse 16 this morning. 8 through 16, and we'll go from there. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Actually, let's keep going after that. Is the next part up on there? Or is that 22? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do ask for your help as we have read your word, as we've read about the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we've seen uh, many examples of what it's like uh, to walk with you by faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us not only to understand the concept of faith itself, Lord, but that you would give us the very idea of faith, that we would trust in one that is not ourself, we would see what is unseen, that we would rely upon uh, the invisible God, and rely upon the word that you've spoken to us. Lord, give us greater faith that we might live a a life that walks in tandem with you, a life that is commendable in your sight, a life that is really abundantly full of joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The following letter was found inside a can of baking powder wired to an old pump on a rarely used trail in the desert of Nevada. Have I caught your attention yet? Here's what the letter read. This pump is all right, as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five more years. But the washer dries out, 
and the pump has got to be primed. Under the white rock nearby, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun. There's enough water in that there bottle to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. So pour about one-fourth in and let her soak to wet the leather. Then pour in the rest medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. Then when you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back just like you found it for the next feller. Signed, Desert Pete. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it and you'll get all that you can hold. What would you do? You found the letter in the can. You've been walking on this rarely used trail out in the middle of nowhere in the desert of Nevada where people die when they don't have enough to drink. Would you drink the water bottle? <laughs> or would you do what he said? It would take some faith, especially if it wasn't 1932, <laughs> to do what he said, because you don't know for sure. It would take some faith trusting the words that he had written in that letter. It takes some trust in the man himself. It takes some trust in his knowledge. It takes some trust in knowing that water's still there. Well, in a very similar way, as you can imagine, you know, the Bible is a letter that's written to God's people. And it takes some trust in the God, the author of that letter, that scripture. Do we trust him? Are we going to follow his word? Is he still going to provide as he has promised? Can we rely upon him? Or are we going to take whatever we can get in this life and, and take it immediately? That, that's, that's the question. That's the, uh, the dilemma, if you will, that each of us has to face as we continue to learn to walk with God and to, to believe His Word as He's written it. Um, this morning, as we continue to read through Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're going to see more evidences, examples of faith. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the example of faith from three men, from Abel, Enoch, and then Noah. This morning we're going to look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but particularly Abraham we're going to focus on because he is what is known as the father of all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I want to look at three outcomes of faith this morning with you, and here are those outcomes. First, if someone has faith, faith causes us to obey God's Word. Second, faith causes us to be sojourners in this world. And third, faith causes us to long for a better world. There's much more to faith, and we're going to continue to read about it throughout the next few weeks, but I want to focus on these three this morning, starting with number one. Faith causes us to obey God's Word even when we don't know all that entails. There are two occasions in the life of Abraham in which God commands Abram or Abraham to do something very specific, but then doesn't give him any more explanation, doesn't give him any details, doesn't show him how it's going to unfold, doesn't show him uh, the, the purpose behind all of this necessarily. But nevertheless, we're told in verse 8, as one example, then later on in the text, that when God gave him a command, Abraham what? He obeyed. The first example is taken from Genesis chapter 12 that David read from earlier, where we're told that the Lord had given a command to Abraham, and he told him this, go from your country and your kindred to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name 
great. And without any other recorded discussion at all in the book of Genesis between Abraham and the Lord, Moses tells us simply, Abraham went just as the Lord commanded. Now, if you remember from our devotional readings back in Joshua chapter 24, and I'm sure you all remember and you all read, because you obey, right? Um, If and when you read that passage in in Joshua chapter 24, we're told there that Abraham's father, Terah, was a worshiper of a pagan god, and that he taught his sons, Abraham and Nahor, also to worship that same god. If you remember, Abraham was not an Israelite, right? He wasn't even a proto-Israelite, if you will. He was a pagan, came from other pagan roots, just as his, his brothers and his fathers had come from. He worshiped the moon god, Urnamu, which is the god who basically reigns over the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. They had, there's actually a ziggurat that was there that overshadowed the whole city that was all devoted to the worship of this god, the god of the moon. Now, God had called Abram away from that place, away from that pagan worship, away from his home, away from everything that he knew, and told him to go to a land that he did not know. And it said that God had given him grace, and he believed. And as a result of that grace, he obeyed and went wherever God told him. Again, without having any other confirmation, without having any signs or any more directions beyond this initial command, Abraham believed the Lord, left his home, left the city of Ur, left everyone and everything he knew in obedience unto God. Now, it's not hard for us to understand why Abraham would be the prime example in the New Testament for someone who believes in God. I mean, after all, if you compare Abraham with Noah, for instance, if you remember when God had commanded Noah to do something, he gave him a lot of details on how to carry out that something, telling him, it'll be 120 years from now, I'm going to bring a great flood, you're going to build a ship, and here's how you're going to build it, detail by detail by detail. Now, Noah still had to believe, he still had to look like a fool in the eyes of the culture and start building that ship, but nevertheless, he had been given so much information, Abraham was just said, go, leave your homeland to wherever I tell you to go. Okay. (laughs) That's it. And yet, he went knowing that the Lord had revealed himself to him. I think that first command might be very difficult to follow. Just leave everything you know and go wherever I tell you. But if that one was hard, think about the latter one that's used later on in Genesis chapter 22. There the Lord again gives him a command. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. <laughs> Again, doesn't tell him exactly where he's going. Doesn't tell him exactly how to do anything. He simply says, go and sacrifice your son. There's nothing else recorded for us. There's no discussion recorded between Abraham and God. Doesn't show him questioning God. Doesn't show him asking for more detail. The scripture simply says, he got up early that morning and went in obedience unto God. But this time... It's interesting. The command seems to contradict the promise. For what we also know earlier on in Genesis is that God had promised that through Isaac would come a multitude of descendants, that Abraham would be the father of many nations through that boy. And so somehow, Abraham is trying to 
reason in his mind, if you will, how does God keep his promise and yet still I keep this command? And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to fill in some of the gaps for us, saying that he had come to the conclusion that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Otherwise, what other conclusion could he come to unless he either didn't believe that God kept his word or he didn't believe he had to obey God's command? He believed both and therefore came to this conclusion. In both cases, Abraham obeyed without knowing where he was going, how God would provide, and knowing exactly what God was up to. That's faith in a nutshell. It's simply believing God's Word and acting accordingly. I'll give you an example. Don't be offended that I use an example of an animal to compare ourselves to faith. But it's like a man who took his dog into the forest every day for work and whose dog was killed in that forest fire. Regularly working outdoors as a logger, the man often would take his dog to be with him throughout the day. This particular day, he asked his dog to stay put and to watch his lunchbox while he went off and to go cut down some trees. Uh, in the midst of that period of time, a forest fire caught, and the fire started coming toward the dog. The dog stayed, and the dog died. And with tears in his eyes, the owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I know that he would do it. Could you imagine God saying that about us? <laughs> I was afraid to tell them to do something because I know they would do it. Of course, we're not brute animals. I'm not saying we're like dogs. <laughs> but we are capable of reason, and, and some of the times it's because we rely too much upon our reason. We sometimes try to out-reason God and think, well, we can't quite figure out what God is doing, so we have to come up with our own conclusion. We'll think sometimes maybe God has forgotten about us like that man forgot about his dog. Or maybe uh, God's command is detrimental to us in some way, and so we're going to go in our own way instead. That's when faith begins to waver, because we begin to rely more upon what we can think of than what God has promised. Think of uh, King Saul as an example. If you remember, King Saul was told by the prophet Samuel, who was speaking on behalf of God, that they were going to go into this battle and there's going to be a victory, but, but yet Samuel was supposed to come first and offer a sacrifice on their behalf. Now, if you remember, Samuel basically uh, was seven days late to the battle. Seven days, Saul waited for Samuel to come. He didn't come. And he saw that his troops began to disperse, and he thought, for sure, I'm going to lose this battle, even though he was promised victory in battle. And so he decided to take up the offering himself. He's not a priest. He's a king. He decided to make the sacrifice himself, not trusting God's word, not believing the promises, instead taking things into his own hands. Is that not what we do? <laughs> Is that not our temptation, our tendency uh, as believers we want to believe God's Word, but when it doesn't seem to work out the way we want, that's when we have a tendency to waver. It's not that God's commands are all that hard to understand. <laughs> it's that oftentimes they're just simply uncomfortable for us. 
especially when those commands tell us to go and do something that we're not good at, like evangelism, or to tell us to continue to look to God in prayer when we don't know for sure that we're being heard, or sometimes to wait upon the Lord in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of a trial when we feel like it has to be solved today, and yet still having to wait upon the Lord. Sometimes God's commands are difficult because just His ways are so contrary to the ways of this world that it makes no sense to us to follow God's Word. And so we choose the latter. The question is, on those occasions, do you obey? Or do you go off in your own way like Samuel or like Saul did? Seek the going our own way. It's only those who look to God's Word by faith that are true children of Abraham. Now, it doesn't mean that we do that perfectly. Even if you look at the example of Abraham, there are many times where Abraham didn't exhibit this kind of faith. In fact, if you remember, on at least two occasions, he tried to offer his sister to someone else as a potential wife because he had lied about his status being um, that he wasn't married to her. Um, It's amazing how quickly we forget the truth when we don't trust God. But it's just as Jesus called his disciples, if you remember. It's the same concept the New Testament is, is in the Old Testament. If you remember when Jesus called his disciples, they were fishing by the Sea of Galilee. He just said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And simply they threw away their nets and they immediately followed. Now, again, keep in mind, this wasn't the first time they had ever seen Jesus. They had already heard him teach and had seen him walking around and, and, and uh, had revealed himself in some way as a Messiah figure. But when he calls them, they immediately leave everything and follow him in obedience to his command. Follow me. They follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that every person who follows Christ has to literally leave their home. Many do. You know, many leave their home and, and, and go and, and work in a, a mission for a field. Uh, it also doesn't mean that you have to give up your day job. <laughs> many have. But that doesn't mean that God's called each one of us to that. What is Required of every believer, though, is that when God calls us, commands us in some specific way, is a response of faith that results in obedience. God hasn't commanded every one of us to leave our homes, but he has commanded us to follow him. What does that look like for each one of us? One of the greatest evidences of faith in the life of a believer is simply a willingness to obey what God commands without stipulations on our part, without demanding to know what lies ahead, and without questioning God's ways and His wisdom, simply saying, God has commanded it. Therefore, I'm either going to go, I'm going to wait, or I'm going to do what He has commanded. That's what it looks like to trust God. That's the first outcome of faith, simply obeying the Lord's commands. Again, none of us know that perfectly, but That's what it looks like. Secondly, faith also causes us to be sojourners in this world. Verse 9, the author says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, it's one thing to leave your home and to go live in another country. It's another thing to continue to live in tents the rest of your life in a foreign country. Wouldn't you agree? Totally different. Now, if you remember, the Lord promised the land of Canaan to Abraham even before he left Ur of the Chaldeans. But it's strange, when he actually gets to Canaan, 
he immediately recognizes or realizes other people already own that land. And there had to be some sort of disequilibrium in his mind at this point. He's like, okay, God, you told me this is going to be mine, but yet people already live here and it's theirs. And yet God still tells him to stay there, to continue to live there in that area, but not be of them. Keep in mind, Abraham was not a a country bumpkin, okay? Uh, Abraham came from one of the, the, the greatest ancient cities of the time. Ur was a metropolitan city. He was very sophisticated, if you will. Came from great culture, and God now has told him to go live amongst the Canaanites, but then live in tents away from them. So he, all of a sudden he's made him into this pastoral figure, a shepherd-like figure, who was known for his culture and his background and being a part of civilization. And yet, there's something that's going on here in which the Lord is continuing to keep him separate from that new country that he's living in. He wants him to be holy, to keep his people away from the influences of the Canaanite culture that are wicked. In the latter part of verse 13, we're told that he, along with all of his descendants, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for they never sought to make Canaan their earthly home, even though they had the means to do so. And this is the interesting part about it. Not only was Abraham very sophisticated, he also was very, very wealthy. In other words, he could have bought any plot of land he wanted to and lived there. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2 tells us that. Abraham was very rich in cattle, very rich in silver, and very rich in gold. He could have chosen any parcel of land in Canaan and built himself a mansion and lived there permanently. But he didn't. He purposely stayed outside of the Canaans, living in a tent. There's a big difference, in fact, if you compare Abraham with Lot in that regard. They both left Ur of the Chaldeans. They both left Haran. Lot is his nephew. They make their way to Canaan. And if you remember, there there came a point in which their shepherds were arguing with one another because they didn't have enough space to spread out with all their flocks. And so Abraham gave Lot the choice to go where he would want to go, and Abraham went in the opposite direction. Now, if you remember... Where did Lot choose to go? Sodom. He chose Sodom because it was a very fertile valley. And he thought, well, this will have plenty of room for my, all of my animals to graze, and, and there's plenty of water here. It just seems like a great place. Abraham went in the opposite direction. And so it says early on in Genesis chapter 13 that when Abraham settled in the wide open country of Canaan, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So sort of hinting at something here. Even though he's tenting, camping, if you will, it's more like glamping. You familiar with that term? The glamour's camping. He's camping, but he's camping right next to Sodom. So his backyard is all of the culture of Sodom and all of the wickedness that goes along with it. He's not living the same life that Abraham is And that didn't last long because we get to the next chapter, chapter 14 of Genesis. We're told that Lot was now dwelling in Sodom. So he was on the outskirts. Now he's moved his tent in 
to town, if you will. And I, I doubt it's really tenting at this point. Because in Genesis chapter 19, now it says Lot is sitting in the gates of the city as one of the leaders of the city. And we find out explicitly, if you remember, when the angels come into the city and are looking for a place to stay, who invites them to stay with them? Lot does. He doesn't invite them to his tent. It says he invites them to his house. He now has built a house in the middle of Sodom, in the middle of that culture, and as a result, he's going to pay dearly for it. Abraham's descendants, on the other hand, continued to live in tents all the days of her life. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, all of them are living in tents until eventually Joseph is taken off to Egypt. But after Jacob had sojourned if, with his uncle, if you remember, in Paddan Aram, for 20 years he comes back purposely to live in the land of Canaan to continue to live in a tent, even though he's become extremely wealthy like his father, his grandfather, he continues to purposely dwell in a tent, not returning back to Mesopotamia. If you think about it, Abraham would be the one most likely to return to Ur of the Chaldeans, most likely to want to go back to Mesopotamia, to back to all that he knew, and yet none of them returned back. They all stayed in the land of Canaan. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't have any interaction with the Canaanites, of course. But it did mean that they refused to intermarry with them. It meant that they refused to enter into any type of working partnership with them in which they would have to pledge or covenant with them in some way. It also meant that they refused to engage in any of their idolatrous practices and also refused to imbibe the culture in which they were associated. In fact, we see that Abraham and his descendants purposely denied themselves certain comforts in order to keep themselves holy, to walk with God more closely. And again, that's the same pattern we see in the New Testament. It's not any different for, for us as it is for Abraham. As Christians, we're told to follow uh, this, this holiness pattern. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle calls all Christians in that letter elect exiles on earth. He's saying you're not of them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, just as Abraham was ransomed from the feudal ways of his father and his grandfather, away from that idolatry, to live a holy life with God. So we have been called in the same manner to live apart from the pagan culture, if you will, a life of fear, fearing the Lord. Keep going, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. The apostle gives this warning to all believers, saying, Beloved, I urge you, again, same language, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So again, if we think of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the passions of the flesh that are raging in that town, he's urging us not to follow the same pattern. Again, we're in a culture that is beginning to trump Sodom and Gomorrah. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Again, Peter exhorts the believers, live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For he says, the time that is past was sufficient for doing what the pagans want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, and idolatries. 
So there's this constant draw by the culture to come farther and farther into it, to conform unto that spirit of the age, the spirit of our land. How do we do that in the New Testament? Well, Abraham and his sons sought to do that by living in tents far away from the city. Living in Michigan in the winter, I don't recommend that practice. Be difficult to follow. There's actually a, a man that had been camping out on our property, unbeknownst to us, and the only way I could convince him to leave was winter is coming. You're not going to live. You'll die out here. No, it, 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 it's not a literal pilgrimage that Peter's talking about in the New Testament, but a spiritual one in which you constantly have this mindset of a, being a sojourner, an exile, a pilgrim on this earth, not conforming to the patterns of this world, but having some sense of holiness, some sense of separation from the world in which we live. L- listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Apostle Paul says something similar. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. He says, let those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what does he mean by that? When Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he he specifically is praying for the holiness of, of the believers that he's leaving behind and for the future generation of believers as well. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, because that would be impossible, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. Now, what is he saying? We don't always see it. It's not always clear to us. But what he's saying is that behind the culture, behind the patterns and the fashions and the values of this world, there's a sinister influence. In other words, the the prince of this dark world is working in tandem with the patterns of this world to continue to, to lull us to sleep, to draw us further and further away from God and to follow instead the, the designs of the devil through various philosophies, through all sorts of deceit, through human traditions and in so many different ways. And uh, the matter of it is we, we really don't always see it. It happens so easily. It happens so slowly. And all of a sudden, you begin to have the, the mindset of an unbeliever. It's no different. Oftentimes, you can see that in the church where you, you can't really tell the difference between the, the believer and the unbeliever. They think the same way. Even our own hearts have a tendency to make an idol out of the things of this earth. And so we constantly see in Scripture that the writers of Scripture are telling us, don't don't put your treasure on earth. If you do, that'll become your treasure, your entire treasure. Same way, they, they, they warn us not to set our hearts too much upon worldly comforts, too much upon worldly entertainments, because we're so easily enticed and then lose sight of who we are, what God has called us to be. Anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world, James says, will naturally become an enemy of God. So there's this sense of watchfulness, soberness for the life of the Christian, somehow a sense of separation, a sense of holiness, because if we don't, we'll turn away from God. In fact, um, if you're reading in Deuteronomy for the devotionalist this week, and again, I'm sure all you are, notice 
in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, you're going to keep going. He's going to keep saying over and over again, be careful. Watch out. He said, I'm about to let you enter into the promised land. You're going to inherit all these blessings beyond measure. And you're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant, houses that you didn't build. And you're, going to, you're just going to be reveling in all the blessings that I'll give you. But he says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Now, in a land like ours, man, I mean, compared to if you've not been outside of our country, it's a pretty wealthy place that we live in. All kinds of riches here. You can see why that warning is needed. doesn't take much for us to forget the Lord our God and to continue to imbibe the culture that is leading us away from seeking God. It's a sinister influence. It happens so easily. And oftentimes you don't even notice it until after you've completely lost sight of God. That's what he's saying. He said there's something about faith that wakens us up to the realities of the patterns of this world. And it makes us want to be a sojourner. Always holding the world at arm's length, knowing we have to deal with it. We're still here, but we're not going to let it become our world, if you will. Not being conformed to it, but being transformed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, by the renewing of our minds as we read God's Word and listen to it and seek to obey it. That's the second outcome of faith. One will naturally become a sojourner in this world. Then third, faith also causes us to long for a better world. Verse 10, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived as a sojourner in the promised land. He says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So if you can sort of contrast in this case the difference between Abraham and Cain, if you remember, Cain immediately felt vulnerable where he was at and sought to build for himself a city and named it after his son and tried to establish uh, a riches and inheritance based upon the city that he's, being, that he's building with his own hands. Abraham, on the other hand, already has all of these riches and all these blessings and is able to trust God to wait for a city that God himself would build with his hands and that rather than by my own hands and taught his descendants to do the same. Likewise, in verse 13, in referring to Abraham and his descendants, the author says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, by faith, they could envision another world, a better country, a heavenly city that's better than anything they could find in Sodom and Gomorrah or any other civilization. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, and you should read Pilgrim's Progress. In that account, um, one of the stops along the way for weary pilgrims is a place called the Delectable Mountains. And on the Delectable Mountains, there are shepherds, pastor-like figures that are helping the believers to continue to see beyond what they can naturally see. And so they take Pilgrim up to these peaks, to one particular peak called Mount Clear, and they give him a perspective glass. Again, something to help him see farther into the distance. And through that looking glass, he can see the gates of the celestial city. He can see the gates of heaven. And that motivates him 
to continue to make his way forward through the valley of the shadow of death, through Vanity Fair, through all the city and all that it has to offer and all the things that it's trying to lead them away, it helps him to keep his focus on the city that has been built for him. And that's exactly what the the language that the writer of Hebrews is saying. It says they greeted it from afar. He's sort of echoing what Moses experienced, if you remember, when Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land himself. He was taken up the top of Mount Nebo and was able to see the promised land from afar. He's saying in the same way that those who have faith have caught a glimpse of a better country. And they live for that country instead of the one in which we're in now. Again, Abraham proved this by purchasing a plot of land for his wife. He could have bought half of Canaan. Instead, he bought a plot of land so that his bones and his wife's bones could be buried in the land that God had promised him in hope of the resurrection of the dead to a better country, to a better place. Joseph did the same thing. If you remember when Joseph left, when Joseph died before uh, he died, he told his relatives to take his bones and bury them in the promised land of the hope of the resurrection to come into a better land. We see the same thing with Isaac and Jacob. As they're about to die, they're, they're blessing their sons, not only for the, the immediate present, but for the long future present, for generations to come with the hope that Christ would finally come and be the fruit of that promise. We see that again. Verse 14, the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're seeking a better country, a heavenly one. So these Old Testament patriarchs were much more cognizant of an eternal realm than we often give them credit. They were not so focused on earthly things. They didn't have the revelation that we have now through Jesus Christ, not the fullness of it, but they got a glimpse of it. And they began to focus on that as the sole purpose for their waiting, for their believing. The reason that they lived in tents because they were not content with living in this world. They wanted something more. They knew that one day they would be welcomed into the new city of Jerusalem, even though they were strangers unwelcomed by the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. On the opposite hand, those who were so at home and have become one with the people of this world. In Revelation chapter 21, they're said to be strangers to the new city of Jerusalem. When they asked to come in as the sheep and the goats tells it for us, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. You're a stranger. You see, the works both ways. You're either a stranger now on earth and a friend and a citizen of heaven, or else you're a a friend and citizen of the world now and a stranger of the world to come. One of the key tests of faith is not merely praying a prayer, not walking an aisle, but it's this constant longing desire for a better world than the one that we have now. The more you grow in your faith in Christ, that faith continues to build. And I would think that the older and older you get, that that would just become even more profound, more desirous, more eagerly longed for in that way. As the story goes, after 40 years of faithful service to the Lord, serving as missionaries in Africa, 
I think some of you probably have heard this story before, but I want to tell it again with a little bit more detail. Henry Morrison and his wife were serving in Africa. They were making their way home to New York by ship. And as they neared the dock, uh, Henry said to his wife, Look, look at that crowd. They haven't forgotten us after all. However, unknown to Henry, the ship (laughs) was also carrying the president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt who was coming home from a hunting trip. And uh, if you think Trump is popular even today, he has something similar to Theodore Roosevelt in that regard. A very populous president. And um, he just went away for a month, came home, and they're greeting him with fanfare, excited that he's back. Flags waving, bands playing, people cheering, reporters waiting to take every comment that he had. Henry Morrison and his wife get off the boat, completely ignored, depressed, feeling like they had been forgotten. They hail a cab. They eventually make it to the one-bedroom apartment that had been provided for them by the mission board. Over the next few weeks, Henry becomes more and more bitter. He can't get behind this incident. He was sinking deeper and deeper in depression. One evening he said to his wife, this is all wrong. This man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody throws a big party. We give our lives in faithful service unto God for 40 years and nobody cares. His wife cautioned him in his attitude, but Henry replied, I know, I just can't help it. It's just not right. His wife said, Henry, you know God doesn't mind if we honestly question him. Go to the Lord and get this settled now, or else you'll be useless in ministry from now on. So Henry goes into his bedroom, gets down on his knees, and begins to pray and to cry out to God. He says, Lord, you know our situation. You know what's troubling me. We gladly served you all of these years without complaining. But now, God, I just can't get this out of my mind. After about 10 minutes of fervent prayer, he comes back in the living room, peaceful look on his face, and his wife says, it looks like you've resolved the matter. <laughs> what happened? Henry replied, well, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was and of my expectations and of the President Roosevelt, how we didn't get greeted at all when we returned home. But when I finished praying, it seemed as if the Lord wrapped his arm around me and simply said, Henry, you're not home yet. You have to believe that when Henry did die, and he did, it's a long time ago now, he got a pretty good fanfare from a number of Africans whom he had witnessed to for 40 years who had gone before him home. Certainly, he would have been welcomed by his Savior. God himself is not ashamed to be called his God. For he has prepared for him a city, along with all of those who walk by faith in Christ. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help. We're not unlike Henry. We do grumble and complain. We don't always see the outcome. 
We make a lot of assumptions that are incorrect. We try to reason instead of walking by faith. We don't know the whole picture. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you, to trust your word, to continue to walk by faith, looking not to what is seen, but to what is unseen, not making this our home, but longing for a better home, a world of love in which Christ sits on his throne and all is well. Father, give us that faith.